Aaron, is it your goal to create something every day? That's a good question. It, I wouldn't say it's my goal to create something every day, but it's definitely my goal to be working on something maybe that I've already created every day. Um, I think it's really important to you know flex that muscle constantly. Um, when I met Victoria, my producing partner and girlfriend, it was actually her Instagram uh, bio that said, create every damn day. And I remember really liking that. <laughs> Did creating become a daily habit for you or working on something become a daily habit for you after you saw Victoria's Instagram? <laughs> or, or that was just always in you anyway and you're like, yeah, I get that. I, I think it was the latter. I think I think I I've always been I've always wanted to create constantly and I think having a partner, having someone to do that with definitely inspires me and like pushes me to actually follow through on what I promise myself to do. I think it's it's easy to get lazy sometimes and uh you know, having someone right there by our side saying we have to finish this is a good sort of kick in the butt to actually do it. Um, but it's definitely, you know, inspiring and helpful having someone with you. What are some of the things that stop you from creating or working on something every day? This week, I would say moving. I didn't really do much creating this week, although we did actually release a making of video for one of our little horror shorts. Um, Sometimes when I'm writing, especially if I'm writing a screenplay, I, I do try to schedule uh, a, a block of the day to actually work on writing. Uh, if, if I'm not feeling particularly inspired, it does help to sort of take a break from that project and move to something else. Um, but there's never really a, a time in my life where I'm completely unable to work or you know, create something or work on a project I already have going on. I try to do a little bit every day. Some days are way more productive than others though. Is that your style anyway? Are you fairly disciplined? I am pretty disciplined. I've, I've been called a robot before. Um, not always in, in the best way, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I wake up, I, I work out, I, pretty much have the same breakfast every morning. Um, and then, you know, with my with my cup of coffee, I sit at my desk and I just work. Uh, and that'll be either writing or editing. Um, and if I'm not here at home, then I'll be, you know, on set putting together a movie or uh, a short film with friends. Do you find safety in routine? I know some people who are the opposite, where they will go absolutely crazy if they have to do the same thing. But some people, I think, crave that routine. I think it helps to have some sort of routine and discipline, but I, I do always find my life and my, my attitude towards things to be somewhat paradoxical in that it helps to have a routine, but you also have to be willing to break that routine. It's I, I think I think uh, I can't even believe I'm quoting Bruce Lee, but I think he said something about acting or fighting uh, where you have to kind of learn everything about your craft and only then can you break the rules. So I, I think I apply that on some level. What are 10 things an aspiring writer should know about writing? 
10 things. Yes, number one, get a good cup of coffee. Sorry. That, yeah, yeah. Like, can we count that as one? <laughs> um, so, so 10 things that any writer should know about writing. I think, Correct. I think definitely, definitely uh, staying caffeinated certainly helps. Um, I think experience is, is sort of an obvious one. I, I think in film school, I, I found that a lot of people were making movies about things that they knew nothing about. And that sort of bothered me. I was always, at least in, in as an undergrad, I didn't really have much life experience. And so I was making uh, movies for better or worse, sometimes without as much substance, but it was still my experience. Um, so I think experience is, is a big one. Um, I think discipline and routine. Being uh, honest with yourself. So honesty is a big one. Oh, why? Sorry to interrupt, but why that one? That's really good. I think honesty is really important to writing because I didn't really even start to realize that I was becoming somewhat of a decent writer until I was really honest with myself. Not just, you know, honesty in the sense of, you know, digging deep in your heart and telling your story or anything like that, but more so being honest about your work, trying to be objective, looking at it, and sort of knowing deep down, or at least telling yourself deep down what you really think of your work, your writing, or your creation. Uh, I sort of found myself, I don't want to say lying to myself, but I would write something and I'd be like, this is the best I can do. It's, it's good enough. And as more and more time went on, I started to sort of say to myself, no, I can actually do better. And I think that, 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 is, that comes with experience. And I think that's part of just being honest with yourself, admitting that you can do better. Awesome. I think, okay, so four, so caffeinated. Oh, is that four? I thought uh, that was five. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, okay, I must have missed one in there. Okay. Um, <laughs> man, this is a good question. Sorry, I'm not just like rolling out with the, uh, the answers. Uh, can I say travel? I think travel is important. Um, meeting all sorts of different types of people. Uh, that certainly inspires the characters that I write. I guess routine and discipline was one that I already said, but I think it's equally as important to be open to breaking that routine, to having this sort of spontaneous fire inside of you that makes you want to do something you've never done before. Um, I, I spent a lot of my college years and post-grad years, you know, focusing on comedy and only now at 32 am I actually diving into horror and I find that I'm actually really enjoying it and it's not something that I ever imagined wanting to do, but I think being open to changing, you know, your trajectory of things is, is a good thing. So spontaneity. And uh, what is that, eight? I believe so, <laughs> seven or eight, yeah. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank on the last two. I think having okay. a good uh, word processing program certainly helps. I think uh, I think <laughs> maybe that just contributes to the uh, structure of things, but I feel I feel a little bit more inspired if I have just the proper equipment to write. That is a, a laptop. Personally, I don't I don't do like pen and paper or anything like that, and uh, you know Final Draft or Celtex or something like that. Um, that's a way more technical answer.
And uh, I think the last thing is arguably the most important, which would just be the passion, the desire to do it. I, th I think you're going to have a lot of trouble if you are, are not enjoying some part of it. I think it's normal to enter into periods where you are like, I hate this. I want to move on to the next thing already. I think accepting that, but still reminding yourself of why you started this to begin with is super important. And if you have that, then you can fall back on it. And I think you will be able to finish just about everything that you start. Excellent. Going back to number eight about having the proper like writing implements or whatever, have you ever tried to do a script or write a script just using pages or Word and not using a, a like a software program? Uh, I I have the I think the last time I I get I guess I should say when I was maybe when I was like ten or eleven I would actually write books and I would start by grabbing a whole stack of paper and folding them and then stapling it and then I would draw pictures and I would actually draw like write my story in those books so I basically at the end at age 11 had a self-published single copy of my book. Um, and then since then, I, I've i probably used you know Word a couple times and I've scribbled ideas in, in uh, notebooks and I even like on my phone right now, I have a notepad of ideas that I can scroll for days. Um, but when I actually sit down to write a screenplay now, it's mainly just final draft. Excellent, okay, great. By the way, do you have those books still that you did? I got to ask my parents. I think we left those <laughs> in our basement in Massachusetts. Uh, and I, you know, I'll ask if they cleaned it out or if they kept them. Oh, I hope they kept them. Yeah. <laughs> What's your process for coming up with story concepts? My process for coming up with story concepts, it ranges from sitting down on a couch with Victoria with the intention of coming up with an idea. Or I could be driving to Pasadena or Vegas, you know, or assuming that the world is open. Um, and I am listening to music and all of a sudden I just come up with an idea that I'd like to explore. Um, so it really, I, I it's, it's, it's not always as simple as just sitting down and, and thinking about an idea more so. It, it just kind of comes when I am most relaxed. Do you think you come up with story concepts more from memory of things that happened in the past, maybe where you grew up or going to college, or does the present moment and observing the world around you trigger story ideas? So I would say the story ideas come from what is happening around me currently. But when it comes time to actually fleshing out a character and sort of trying to write a dynamic, relatable, realistic character, I have no choice but to go to my past and go to my memory and sort of summon up feelings or memories of people that went through something similar or some variation of whatever it is I'm writing about. So it's, it's definitely a combination of those two. Can you talk about your first couple of weeks starting a screenplay? Where does it start and what are those first two weeks like? It definitely starts with that small nugget of excitement wherever that may take place on the couch with Victoria or in my car driving listening to music. And I think the ideas that that really stick, that, that I'm thinking about for a few days 
or even a few weeks um, are the ones that I actually decide to move forward with and begin writing. When I begin writing, I will make a cup of coffee, sit down at my computer, and just start writing. And I don't really, I don't really think too much about what it is that I'm doing. I try to just get as much out as possible, knowing that a good portion of it will suck. And then handing that to someone like that I trust, like Victoria or even my parents or friends, and getting some feedback. Now, not all of that happens in two weeks. I would say the first two weeks is mainly spent questioning whether or not it's a good idea, thinking about what, why I would want to tell this story, thinking about why this would be important or how I can make it important on some level or make it personal to me. And once I decide that it is important to me, then I'll just sit down and, and, and start working it out on, on paper. Do you have people you give it to that are harsh critics? I would say Victoria is my harshest critic. Um, <laughs> yeah, my, my parents have been pretty, pretty supportive of, about everything. Um, so, you know, I take what they say with a grain of salt. We have a couple of writer friends that we like sending it to, and they give decent feedback. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely prefer to give it to people that are going to say... You know, I don't want to say meaner things, but just more truthful things. Sure. Like some people don't have a filter and that's can be helpful sometimes. And maybe sometimes it's not so helpful, but <laughs> certainly, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever had an idea that you thought was great and you began writing it and you said, you know what, this is just I'm not into it. I've lost interest. And then you've resumed like a year later and you loved it. Absolutely. There's there's actually two ideas that I can think of. Um, one is a script I wrote a couple years ago, fully with the intention of actually making, just with friends. Uh, basically just about a guy who doesn't really have much life experience, and so he sets out to give himself life experience, mainly a traumatic experience. Um, and I, I, I was really excited by that idea, but then I wrote it, and it just didn't really... Uh, it didn't really hit the way that I wanted, and so I, I shelved it. And a couple years later, I actually picked it up again, read through. I was like, there's actually some really good pieces here. And I sort of just, you know, over like a few days, just uh, sort of started to edit from page one. Another one is, uh, it's called The Philosophy Circle, and it's, it's a movie that I actually wrote probably when I was like 23. And I've, that's the only script I can say that I've actually edited consistently from age 23 to as recently as maybe two years ago. So it's been sort of a work in progress for about seven years or so. And why take so long with something? I think some stories are, are more complicated than others. And I, I think sometimes if you get really excited about something and you know that there's something there, but it didn't really strike a chord with you, maybe it's best that you shelve it for a little bit and then come back later. I think that can benefit a lot of projects, whereas some projects are way more straightforward and regimented. And you either kind of know if you're on the right track or not within a much smaller period of time. Yeah, I've heard some writers say, I think it was the writer of The Goldfinch, the movie mm -hmm. The Goldfinch, that she loves um, 
the slow process of writing and she doesn't want to rush it. And I think it took her 12 years or so oh, yeah. to finish that yeah. story. So some people, they really savor that that long process. They don't want to rush it. I, I think that benefits some people and some projects, and I've found myself sort of going both ways in that regard. I've spent a lot of time on certain projects, and then I've sort of, I don't want to say rushed through, but definitely cruised right through. I think I the first script I ever wrote was in a week, and I kind of followed the very traditional three-act structure. I knew exactly where it was going. I wouldn't say it was, it was uh, you know, award-winning by the end, but... Um, some some stories also just come out of you way easier than others. Some some definitely take more time to marinate and sort of figure out along the way. Let's say you've written a screenplay and you feel that it's a nine out of ten. It's almost there. How would you get it to be a ten? I don't think you ever can. <laughs> At least not in your eyes. I've never done anything that I've said this is a ten out of ten. There's always things that I see room for improvement. Um, is that a bad answer? <laughs> no, no, that's good. I, and I think some people are hardwired that way. Like nothing is ever, they've got to always tweak things. Absolutely. And I think that makes people great at whatever they do. Absolutely. I, I think you were talking I, about that late. You have to be somewhat OCD, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't even think I've ever done anything that's nine out of 10. I, th I think, uh, I think it, it's this one giant journey to sort of, you know, make that 10 out of 10 project. And I think that's what gives me hope is this constant evolution of wanting to be better and wanting to make your next project even more perfect than the last one. But every time I make one, I do look at it and I say to myself, that is significantly better than the last one, uh, at least more often than not. So I see growth and that's, that's really all I can ask for. I've never actually finished something and been like 10 out of 10. Have you seen other people's work that you're like nine out of 10, 10 out of 10? I've seen other people's work that makes me want to quit the film industry because I don't think I'll ever live up to it. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I remember seeing Inception in theaters and just, walking out of the theater and turning to my friend and saying like, I don't even know if I want to like live in LA anymore and make movies. Cause I'm never going to make something like that. Uh, it, it is just that, that to me is just such a wonderful, brilliant movie. Um, so, so yes, I, 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 Martin McDonough is another of my favorites with like screenwriting wise. I just, the dialogue that he writes, I, I, aspire to, to write like that or, or just, you know, think on that level. Um, but there's certainly a lot of people that I, I look up to that I think I don't know if I can ever be that good. So does that make you then want to stop or make you want to rise to their level? I know that sounds so cliche. Sorry. I mean, I, I say that sort of <laughs> facetiously. I, I, I will, ne I'll never stop. Um, but but yeah, it was sort of like a funny, funny, sarcastic joke, you know, and I said that in the movie theater walking out of Inception. Uh, I'll never want to stop, but it's uh, it's this sort of abstract goal to sort of make something that you watch and elicit the same response in yourself that you had when you watched something like Inception. And I don't know if that will ever happen. I think I'm always going to be my harshest critic, but... 
it's definitely something I aspire to do and it's what keeps me going is just that sort of nugget of hope. Well, a lot of times something that inspires people is seeing bad work or even in entrepreneurs, they see some idea and they go, I could do better than that. And why does that person get to do that? I want to do it. And there you go. And there's, there's the trajectory of their career because it was all built on Certainly. seeing somebody else do something that they think they failed at. I think that I think that's human to to look at someone else's work and and say, oh, I'm I'm better than that, or or I can I can do that. Why aren't I? You know, why haven't I made it big yet? I I sort of and I, and I do that on some level more so from a business perspective because I want to be able to make movies and you know have have a career and actually support myself doing that. So I ask myself, well, why are they getting paid all of this money to do something I know I have the skill set to do? Um, so I don't really, I don't really think in that way creatively as much because, you know, the story that you choose to tell the movie that you make is oftentimes a, a personal choice and, and who's to say one is better than the other. I think what you can judge is sort of the, uh, you know, the, the technicals of it, the, maybe the business of it, you know, why is their movie picked up by Lionsgate and distributed worldwide when mine had all the same shot on the same camera and, you know, has just as much character growth and three act structure format and all of that. <laughs> Do you think it's good to have a little bit of a, a, a chip on the shoulder in terms of having a competitor or, or, or does that not fuel you? I think some people it really fuels them. I think and others, uh, it doesn't. I, I know I know it, it fuels some people. I know Victoria has, has said that it, it certainly helps to have have that I don't want to say chip on your shoulder, but you know that kind of a little bit of ego, you know, like like as though it's a competition. I, I honestly, I, I've never felt any kind of competition. I, I very much felt like I've sort of been on my own journey, sort of growing. and like I said before, I am my harshest critic. So something really isn't good enough until I say it's good enough. And it certainly helps, you know, going to film festivals and having people pat you on the back and say, that was a wonderful movie, like, great job. And it gives me a little bit more confidence. But even if they said that was a terrible movie, I would probably still move along and, you know, make another project regardless. Um, but it, it, it certainly helps. <laughs> Is there such a thing as story intuition? I would lean to saying yes. I, I think um, I think certain people do have something innate within them that uh, that where they just understand character and and they understand the direction that stories need to go in. I think other people might require a little bit more work to get there. So I'm not saying that some people just have it and some people don't. I just think some people maybe have a little bit more of an advantage based on where they're from or where their mind was focused at on a, at a young age. Um, that seems like a very scientific answer to a metaphysical question. <laughs> where do you think you fall on that spectrum? I wouldn't say I have all the intuition in the world, but I do. I, I, I've been interested in storytelling and filmmaking since I was 11 or 12. So I every the way that I've perceived the world has sort of been, you know, with that in mind, I want to make a movie. 
So I think that certainly helps when you know early on in your life that you want to do something in entertainment because you think in that way. And so, you know, your brain becomes wired in that way. And I think it helps when fast forward 15 years, you decide to write a screenplay. You have now spent all this time watching movies thinking, I want to do that. And so it sort of, it helps. Whereas there are a lot of people that, you know, might be a mechanical engineer. And then when they're 30 years old, they're like, actually, I want to become a screenwriter. And then it takes a little bit of learning and a little bit of, uh, you know, education to, to get there. And they might be, you know, even better than I was, but it, it requires more, I guess, um, you know, proactiveness. It, it requires a little bit more education to get there. All right. So on one end of the spectrum, maybe a story technician and on the far end, a story alchemist or something. Exactly. Then... <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> In the middle is, is sort of both. Okay. That sounds good. Do you think that if intuitively someone doesn't know story that they'll never be a writer? You know, you talked about the engineer, this hypothetical writer. I think I, I, I actually believe that anyone can be a writer. I think I think it's all just a matter of how much you're willing to put into it to actually tell an interesting story or complete your story. Um, I think everyone has a life experience that can be interesting in, in some way. And I think it's just sort of up to them to have the will to learn how to take that experience and translate it into a story that anyone can watch and anyone can understand and anyone can enjoy. And does the life experience have to be necessarily traumatic? Definitely not. No, <laughs> it doesn't have to be traumatic. It just has to be, it just has to be interesting and memorable to you. And, and I think some of those stories will resonate with a lot of people. Some of those stories will resonate with a small group of people, but I find it hard to believe that there is anyone in this world who is only experienced one thing that no one else has ever experienced before. And even if that is the case, then that would be a pretty damn interesting story. So writers can be happy, productive people. They don't have to be self-loathing. No, they definitely don't have to be. No. <laughs> I think it's normal to go through periods of self-loathing and self-loving. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't think it's one or the other. What do you think about learning everything you can about structure? And then forgetting it. Kind of going back to the Bruce Lee uh, quote, right? <laughs> I, think, I think it's a great idea to take that approach. I think it's very important to have a foundation, an educational foundation on whatever craft you're doing. Because there are plenty of people that came before you that knew what they were doing and they did it exceptionally well. And so you want to learn from those people. And once you learn sort of how to you know, put together a story or put together a movie, this really can be, uh, you know, this can be attributed to any craft in the world, then you can then infuse your own experience onto that and create something new and original. How do you develop character? By looking at my own experience or talking to other people that have had an experience similar to whatever character it is that I'm writing, I like to think I have some level of intuition with how people behave, but I'm always surprised. 
And especially when writing a female character, for example, I'm not the best source of information because I'm not a female. So I will ask girls, I'll go to Victoria and, and ask, like, help me, help me craft this character because everybody thinks in a, in a different way. And um, it's, it's definitely important to have that sort of well-rounded um, point of view. And it's, it's important to sort of have, I think, multiple voices, just as there would be multiple uh, characters in your story. It's important to have multiple voices, at least giving you, the writer, feedback, giving you, the writer, some direction to go in or some understanding of these characters. What would you say is the most perfect fictional character, whether it be in a novel or film? One of my, this is a strange answer to that. One of my favorite characters in film and one of my favorite movies is um, A Serious Man, Coen Brothers. And uh, the, main, uh, the main character in that is basically going about his everyday life just trying his hardest, trying his best, trying to be a good person. And there's, there's always something around him that's happening that's sort of throwing a wrench into his plan. And it's not like he did anything wrong. He's just an ordinary guy with a family. And um, one thing after another happens and a storm is literally coming throughout the entire duration of the movie. And I thought that that was just such a beautiful representation of life. And when I watched that movie, and every time I've watched it thereafter, I've watched it multiple times and find new little, you know, gems within it. Uh, I, it's just really resonated with me. I've, I've looked at that movie and watched that character a million times and thought, yes, I, I can relate to that. I love that movie as well. I love the character of Psy. Yeah. And not so much because Psy, I mean, Psy is actually a horrible person, but you right. don't know, spoiler alert, but you don't <laughs> know that at first. And so the fact that he seems a little more genuine and then the, the needle moves and you see, wow, this person's actually like a saboteur. And I don't know, such is right. life. You don't, right, you don't right. always, you don't always know sometimes. Exactly. In, in <laughs> Yeah, but that's that's a great film as well, and it's a it's a great um, character study. And I also like the brother in the film. Mm -hmm. I thought the brother was a good because uh, his life is probably more damaged than you know Michael Stallwark's character. And exactly, it's uh, Richard it was, Kind, right? Oh, is that right? Okay, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the uh, that's the actor's name, I think. The, yeah, okay. Yeah. Why did you switch from comedy filmmaking to horror? Well, I, I wouldn't say that I, I switched as much as I'm just sort of trying something new at, at this time. Um, I, you know, like, like I said before, I, I definitely needed a career. And ever since I was in high school, I've always known that horror is a great way to break in. But my instincts were sort of more pushed towards comedy. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. And I, and I think I did it decently well. Uh, but now, you know, in, in sort of an effort to, to experiment and also, you know, launch a career, I think it was a great, it was a great, it was just a great, uh, what, what, what word am I looking for, uh, idea to just sort of try a different genre because I could sort of flex my filmmaking muscle, which, which I wasn't really doing in, in comedy as much, but with horror, I think there's a lot more room to sort of explore and be creative and inventive and 
work with lighting and camera angles. Um, and then just from a, a career perspective, it, when we release these, I mean, these get a lot more attention than if I were to, you know, release a comedy sketch or a, even a romantic comedy movie. People, people really love horror. You think, too, because horror can be more, not just regional, but other people in, in other countries can pick up more on scares rather than a little nuance here and there. Of, Absolutely. Of some funny thing. That's, that's a huge part of it. I think, I think, you know, someone in Japan who doesn't speak any English uh, can still see a scary monster and have a feeling, uh, whereas they might not watch, you know, King of Staten Island and understand the nuances of every joke. Sure. Sure. And there's East Coast humor versus West Coast, too. Since That's you're true. From the East Coast, yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> there's, definite, there's definitely uh, differences there. What have you learned about making people laugh? I've always liked making people laugh because it's, um, it's, a, it's a, a visceral response that sort of gives you, as a creator, some, sometimes the validation that you need that you're putting out some good content or good material. Um, it seeing, I mean, seeing a smile on someone's face makes me smile. So it's there, there's no harm there. Um, there's, there's a lot of good stuff about making people laugh. <laughs> Do you think sarcasm is, is a dirty word? No, I'm, I'm incredibly sarcastic and I, and I don't, <laughs> I don't mean that sarcastically. I'm dead serious. <laughs> What have you learned about writing something scary? I think I've, I've heard a lot of people say this. I do find a lot of similarities between horror and comedy. You kind of have a, a buildup and then a punchline, um, you know, or a setup and a punchline or a, a slow build and then a scare. Uh, so they're very similar. And so I, if there's one thing I've learned about horror is that it's actually very similar to comedy. Um, and you kind of get that same visceral re reaction from your audience seeing them jump as you would in comedy seeing them laugh. And it, and it feels good to see that. It's, it's super cool. And, and we, we've been releasing these horror shorts on our, on our YouTube channel. And I've seen so many people make reaction videos to watching our horror shorts. And that is a very rewarding and interesting thing to see literally just looking into someone's eyes, watching them as they watch your movie. I've never, ever experienced that in anything else I've ever made before. But it's, it's super cool. Which horror protagonist do you most identify with? That's a tough question. I, um, it seems like a lot of protagonists in horror movies have experienced or gone through some really traumatic life experience. So... I'm sure I, I identify, you know, on some level. Obviously, they're they're compl they're exaggerated tenfold in in movies. Um, I just saw Doctor Sleep, and I and I love that one. Uh, Ewan McGregor's character was fantastic. Um, I'd have to think about that one a little bit more. It's it's hard to imagine a, a protagonist in a horror film that that I've really resonated with before. Maybe um, the Babadook. The, the lead in the Babadook, that was a really interesting movie because I think everyone has some demon inside of them in some way or another. And I think that's what made that movie so great is it was just a visual representation of something we all 
we all experience on some level. Maybe not, you know, grief to that extent. Some people probably have definitely have experienced grief to that extent. Um, a lot of people, even if they haven't, can still understand this sort of demon inside that, you know, is wants to get out and and it's it's that movie was just such an interesting exploration of that and sort of how you either censor yourself or you know push certain things away and yeah it was a great movie can you talk more about your process for writing comedy comedy it's 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 very very hard to write um and i i wouldn't say i have any particular process i think when writing a screenplay it's really important, and, and this is definitely true for just about any genre, but I think in comedy in particular, it's very important that the concept itself starts off from a, in a funny, interesting place. And I think, it, I think for me, uh, I know Victoria hates this word, uh, but, but when something is grounded, even if it's sort of a, an, a crazy, abstract, supernatural you know, movie or, or concept, so long as the characters and the reactions stay grounded, I think that's very important to comedy. Um, so you want to start with a, a concept that is inherently funny, and then you sort of build characters off of that that support the concept and are completely different. And I, I, I definitely enjoy writing the dialogue, I think, more so than anything else, because just writing odd, weird, quirky, fast-paced, funny jokes is rewarding. And, and if it, it, it's fun to write because I sometimes find myself laughing while coming up with ideas. Whereas if I'm, if I'm writing a, you know, a drama or a horror movie, I, it's not always as fun. Sometimes it's just you know scary or you kind of have to go dig a little deeper to actually find something worth writing about. Comedy, it, it just, it, if it makes you laugh, I think it, it works. So it's, it's definitely more fun. Did you watch a lot of Seinfeld when you were a kid? Absolutely. And Curb Your Enthusiasm. Curb Your Enthusiasm got me through high school and college. And it still does today. And a lot of people even say I'm a lot like Larry David. <laughs> Do comedy and horror have the same story beats? I think they're very similar, for sure. Uh, like, like I said, you know, before, I, I do think that horror will sort of have a slow build and then a, a jump scare, whereas comedy will have a setup and a punchline. Uh, when it comes to the actual, you know, overall structure of, of a full-length screenplay, I, I think just about every genre should follow generally the same kind of rules. Um, loose rules can be broken, but... In that regard, I don't think there's any difference. Did you ever try your hand at stand-up comedy, Aaron? My mom did. Um, I haven't. Oh. <laughs> um, I've, I've actually, I do have a Word document with some like stand-up jokes, or I have it in my phone somewhere. Um, but I've never tried stand-up. I don't, I don't know if that's something I want to do. How cool. So would your mom perform at comedy clubs? I'm... I think she's tried it just a couple times. Yeah. I think the first time she did it, she was in her uh, 50s. Wow. Yeah. 
And so do you remember, like, or I guess you're probably too young to go to the club or I, can you tell me about that? That's fascinating. Uh, well, I actually, I wasn't there. <laughs> I was, okay. I was out here in LA, um, but she just, there was this, it was like a cafe in Massachusetts and they had a open mic night and uh, she went and tried it out. And uh, I was thinking, uh, good for you. That's, uh, that's awesome. I don't, I don't know if I would have the confidence to do that. I do think stand-up comedy is one of the most difficult uh, performances any any human can can do. I think it's it's nerve wracking. It's uh, difficult, and if I were to do stand up, I'd want to be I'd I'd want to be everything intellectually stimulating, hilarious, lowbrow and highbrow all at the same time, and um, it it would require just as much work, if not more, as writing a screenplay which is something I'd prefer to spend my time doing anyway. So just with story beats, there's probably timing and, and things like that with stand-up as, as well? Oh, absolutely. I think some of the best stand-up comedians actually have a full structured story where they'll, they'll start with something and sort of have this story that weaves in and out all the way through up until the end, which is just one giant callback joke to everything that came before it. And I have a lot of respect for that, and I love stand-up. Every time I see a new stand-up special released on Netflix, I get very excited. <laughs> yeah, and, and not just the concept of hecklers, but also people in the audience. Like if you watch old Robin Williams footage, mm -hmm. if people aren't even like challenging him, and he's just you know pointing them out. And so he has new material to work off of, even if his set is or was... Um, one thing he's got new things to kind of work off and pull. Absolutely. I mean, Robin Williams is he's genius. I, I think I've seen some of those some of those videos that you're talking about. Um, I mean, yeah, he's he's super quick, and you definitely need a thick skin to to do that, and you, you just need to really be able to think on your feet, which I can't, which you know, or at least not as well as evidenced by this interview. You know, I'm not coming up with the answers right away. Um, I, I definitely am the type of person that I need time to like think about things and give a good answer. I don't want to just come out with it, you know? And so I don't know how I'd respond to hecklers. I wouldn't necessarily have a, a quip, you know, just that, that, uh, quick. <laughs> so again, going back to the, uh, the competitor or the, the chip on the shoulder, you'd rather be the, um, you know the the Michael Jordan documentary he, he showed that he needed that you know so right to right push him and make him great so you're more the one that's the internal again going back to the two schools yeah for better or worse I don't know which which outlook is better um, but um, yeah I, I I I at least try not to have a chip on my shoulder. <laughs> Some chips work. Some, Some chips work. definitely do. I mean, that you, yeah. you need you need a certain level of confidence in yourself to just push through. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think it's like I said before. I'm sort of a, I'm sort of a paradox. I think a lot of people are a paradox. You need your days where you're like, I'm king of the world. I can do anything, and then you need the days just as much where. You question everything, your reality, who am I and why am I doing this with my life? I think that balance is important and I think it's dangerous to tip anything in any one extreme direction. But, you know, it's a giant pendulum that you just need to constantly balance. So your mom only did two stand up 
Um, I love that segue. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. She, yeah, she. Uh, I think she tried it. I think she tried it twice, and um, yeah, she said she got a, a few laughs at my father's expense. But I, I think uh, I think it went pretty well for for her first time. What have you learned about writing villains? Writing villains, I think. Writing villains should be approached the same way that writing any other character or protagonist should be approached. I, I, a good villain is you understand why they're doing what they're doing and you understand uh, what they want just as much as you understand what the protagonist wants. That's Who's one of your favorite villains? One that actually comes to mind is uh, Javier Bardem in uh, No Country for Old Men. Uh, there's something terrifying about him, but in the end, he just kind of dies naturally without any, you know, with kind of indirectly of the events of the movie that took place. So you kind of, which is what also what I love about that movie is you have this, the, these tropes that, that the characters and the story follows and then it's just completely broken by the end and you're sort of left with an even more terrifying feeling or a more freeing feeling depending on how you want to look at it that there really is no distinct good or bad in the world and if there is there is no real justice or maybe there is it's a, it's all a paradox it's all a matter of how you look at it so that's, I think that, that was, he was a great character and that was a great movie. What about what's one of your most hated villains? I feel like if I actually watched a, a movie and, and genuinely hated a character, I might, I might not like the movie that much. I, a part of me wants to kind of like on some level everybody that I watch, even if they're a, a, the antagonist. You kind of want to like who they are and what they're about or at least get something out of it. Um, someone that is just pure evil, I find to be unrealistic. Um, so now I'm trying to think of movies with sort of just purely evil characters, uh, you know, and, uh, I guess I would need, I, I would still need some more time, time with that, man. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> what about the Joker? I do, I do think that the Joker, they, they definitely did a good job of, And I'm talking about like the most recent Joker. They, they definitely did a good job of sort of showing, you know, this guy who is disturbed. I, I personally had trouble relating to, to uh, that character, at least in the, the latest version, uh, mainly just because it, it was a, a movie about this, you know, mentally ill person. And, and it, it's, it's, it can be fascinating to watch at certain points, but he wasn't really as much of a villain in that movie. Um, I, you know, maybe in like the classic Batman uh, uh, comics, you know, he, the Joker is certainly portrayed more so as a villain. And in that case, it is more black and white, but the, the origin of him, I guess, is, is definitely more of a character study on someone with mental illness. And therefore I wouldn't even look at it, look at him as a villain at all. I don't know if that's a pretentious answer, but uh, yeah. <laughs> no, 
No, I, there's been a lot of debate, I know, about that character. And, and so yeah, I was curious. yeah. I mean, that, that was an interesting movie. And, and I, I wouldn't say it was my favorite movie. Um, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I, it was definitely a different approach. Um, but yeah, I, I look at The Dark Knight and I find, you know, I find uh, Heath Ledger in that movie just to be very well-rounded and, and a, a wonderful, wonderfully written villain because he is actually, he's giving reason for why what he, for what he does and the, the sort of, you know, um, Again, what's the what's the word I'm looking for? The the predicaments that he puts the protagonist in are very difficult situations. That it's like, I what do you do in this situation? It's it's a, and I think that's a, that's a great you know predicament to put your protagonist in. Is something that anyone can watch and be like, I don't know what I would do in that situation. I want to see how this person is going to do it. So you love Christopher Nolan? I, like I do. Yeah. Yeah. I believe you made your first feature film in 2013. Did you think upon making that your life was going to change? I guess if I were to ever have a period of my life where I did have a chip on my shoulder, it was in 2012 making that movie. Um, I, I I didn't really, I, I didn't know what was going to happen with it. I, I was very much focused on just making a movie that I wanted to make and had zero intention of trying to make something marketable or or anything all i wanted out of it was sort of just you know i just wanted to open a door and have maybe an agent that can help me make my next movie or garner the attention of some investors that would finance the next movie uh while making it it was an absolute blast uh and i definitely hope for the best i didn't if you were to actually ask me truthfully if i thought this was going to be my big break i'd probably say no, I don't think so. But I, I just sort of wanted to prove to myself that I could make a coherent story. And and I think I successfully did that, at least, you know, when I was 20, 23 years old or so. Do you really think that's a chip on your shoulder or, or more just creative longing, just wanting to make something? It was probably, probably more creative longing. I mean, I, I, it wasn't like in a cocky way. I, I, of course, hoped that we would get into Sundance and make a million dollars. And there was a small part of my mind that thought that could happen. I could see that happening. Now I don't really think in that way. So, so when I was younger, I definitely, you know, the whole Sundance dream and selling your movie for, for millions and millions of dollars was, it was much more of a possibility in my mind back then. Whereas now, it might happen, but I don't even I don't even think about that now. Now I focus so much more on the actual content I'm trying to make and just making the best possible movie I can. Would you advise other first-time filmmakers, not just a short, but a feature, that it be really more of a, again, cliche term, but a passion project rather than aiming for this incredible distribution deal? That's that's a very difficult question to answer, and I know I'm sure a lot of people will watch this, and and I want to I want to be careful with my word choice because I don't want to like lead anyone down the wrong path. Um, you know, obviously everyone's different, and personally, I think it's important to think, you know, about the business of it, and also think creatively 
just how everything else seems to be a balance in life, you also need the balance of business and creative. Like you, at least if, if you want to make a living doing this and only this, personally, I think that's really important. Um, there are plenty of people who I, who I, you know, look up to that not once have ever thought about the business part of things. In fact, they despise it and they've only focused on the creative part of it and, and that's worked out well for them. And then there's plenty of people that only focus on the business and you watch their movie and you can tell, but the business is really working out and the, the creativity part of it kind of suffers. For me, I like to keep both in mind all the time. When I'm actually on set or when I'm actually in front of my computer writing, I first and foremost, I do my best to compartmentalize and I, I, I just focus on the story and what it is that I'm actually writing about, what it is I want to say. And then when we go through the revision stage, it's like, all right, well, this might be more relatable or we might be able to actually call this a horror film if we add a few more, you know, jump scares or, you know, add, just sort of add to it, fluff it up to sort of take your original creative vision and make it a little bit more marketable so you can make money and do it again. Uh, what mistakes did you make with 15 North that have always stuck with you that then going forward with a new project, you always remember those mistakes and try to correct anything, whether it's in pre-production, post? I think I spent too much on post-production. I think I, I think I, I realized later on that I could actually do a lot more my, myself, at least in, in that small of a budget, I could do a lot more uh, instead of, you know, spending money and, and hiring, you know, someone else to do certain things. Um, although then again, the entire landscape has changed and you're able to do so much more from home now than you were just seven years ago. I'm trying to think of, of the biggest mistake. I, I would say the biggest mistake that I made on my first movie was not spending enough time on the script. I definitely approached the entire project with this attitude of, I just want to make a movie. I want to make it real. I'm just going to keep the cameras rolling and, you know, get natural performances is very sort of mumblecore style. And I think that that is good, but I didn't prepare enough. I feel like I could have fleshed out the story a lot more with, you know, just really focus on a more traditional three-act structure and and focus on writing characters with more depth and, and that sort of thing. If there was one thing I, I could do over again, that would probably be it, is just spend more time focusing on the actual script. Do you think that prompted your YouTube channel? Because you give such helpful tips with your channel. Do you, do you think that prompted you to want to start it or no? Certainly. I mean, I, I think... The, the the content I'm putting out on on my YouTube channels is basically just everything I wanted to see, you know, when I was when I was a few years younger. I wanted to see people creating content from home by themselves and I, I enjoy that. I love seeing people and what they're able to do without big studios behind them. Uh, would I take a studio job? Of course. But I, I really get a kick out of this just home-brewed, you know, do-it-yourself kind of approach. 
I think your top video um, is about the using um, the drawing aspect in Adobe. Oh yeah, the the scribble animation. <laughs> That's funny. Did you know that would be so popular? Uh, no, not not really. I mean, I know it's a it's a popular effect, um, but. Yeah, with that kind of thing, you never really know it's gonna be popular. With our other channel, you know, Social House Films, that's a lot more cut and dry. You know, if you if you make a short horror film and it looks pretty and the monster looks scary, then it's probably gonna do pretty well. Uh, these tutorials, it's it's hard to sort of be on the pulse of what effect is going to be, you know, the most desirable. Now that now that TikTok is a thing, you know, a lot of people are trying to like create their own effects at home, and and so I, I never know what that next thing is going to be. I have a quote here, Aaron, and it reads: "I selfishly like a lot of first-time directors because they over-prepare, they are super eager, and they have very little ego." And that quote is from none other than Mark Duplass of the Duplass Brothers. I definitely agree with that. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I, I do think that when you're a new director, you feel like you have something to prove. And I think it was David F. Sandberg who said that you want to prepare 200% just to get 100% results. And I think especially first time directors, because they have something to prove or, uh, they're nervous they tend to over-prepare a little bit, and when it comes to filmmaking, that's definitely not a bad thing. I, I, I've noticed that my movies get significantly better if I actually plan every single shot, every single moment. It sounds grueling and tedious and difficult, and it absolutely is, but it also, it also sounds obvious. Of course, you prepare, you do a better job, but it, it makes a world of a difference. I remember earlier on in my, in my you know, career, I remember you, you actually asked if, uh, what, what was one of the biggest mistakes I learned with my first feature? And I would say not preparing every single shot. I think especially on a, a much smaller budget film, if you actually over-prepare, you know exactly what you're going to shoot and you're going to know every single moment that it is that you're shooting, uh, then the, the finished product is going to be so much better. Did you storyboard, do anything like that? I did not storyboard 15 North. It was, it was very much, again, from this approach of, I just want to get two cameras rolling at the same time, sort of shoot it in this very mumble Corey documentary style. Um, didn't want to really do that much planning. I did have a, a loose shot list um, just to sort of make sure I covered, you know, basically got all the coverage that I needed. But since that movie, I've definitely spent a lot more time focusing on what's actually in the frame. Um, on that movie, it was just sort of like, let's point a camera at this actor, get their lines, and let's just do a couple takes of that and move on. I don't really do that anymore. How does a writer or filmmaker earn their audience? Uh, that's, a, that's also a good question. I, I think a writer or filmmaker probably earns their audience by being honest with themselves. I think it's like making a friend, you know? If, you are a, if you're a good person and you have good intentions and you 
care about what it is that you're saying, I think people are going to listen and they're going to be interested. Um, if you if you seem like you're you know making a movie or telling a story for all the wrong reasons, I think that's gonna sh it's gonna shine through in your work. Uh, so I think you know you you definitely earn an audience's trust in that way. And then of course you know the the technical aspect of it. If it looks terrible, uh, it's going to be distracting, and nobody nobody's going to really even take the time to watch it, even if the content itself is riveting and good. Uh, you know, you kind of, you, you sort of need this baseline production value to say, okay, I know what I'm doing, now hear what I have to say. And what if you build an audience and they become so invested in your stories and your characters that they revolt because they wanted those characters and stories to become something else. But you as the creator, it's your imagination. But how much is the audience say involved in some of that? How much say do they have? If I could start audience? a revolution, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy. I could, I could die early. Um, um, I, I guess the best example, I, I, I mean, I've never really made anything overly controversial uh, that would cause anyone to revolt about anything. However, there is one horror short that we just released a few weeks ago called Diet. And we wanted to play with the tropes of sort of what makes a traditional horror film where you just have this, you know, usually it's a girl just home alone and something scary happens. She hears a noise or something is at the window and she goes up to it and it's nothing, and then she goes into bed, and then turns around, and there's a scary monster, and that's it. That's the end. And it's, it's like the most cliche kind of like little horror short you can imagine. And so I was thinking of a way to play around with that and have all of those same tropes, but then at the very end, you just have that main character die of natural causes, in which case he just dies of uh, choking on a carrot. And then a monster in the closet reveals herself, and sighs with disappointment because she couldn't fulfill her duty as a scary monster who terrorizes her victims. Uh, so we released that, and I, you know, I thought it was like kind of a funny comedy horror idea. A lot of people were confused by it. A lot of people got it. A lot of people were like, "What the hell did I just watch? That I, it doesn't make any sense." Um, so that was actually very interesting, and it was particularly interesting to watch reaction videos of that film. Aaron, are you saying that every horror short that you do, people do reaction videos to? Just about every horror short. I th actually, I think every horror short that we've made, there are reaction videos online. And, and I, I do love watching them. Some, we even have shared a couple to our Social House Films Facebook page. Do they usually let you know or do you find them in search? There's only been one person that's ever let us know. Um, everyone else just, they just do it on their own. But I mean, that's, that's fair. I, they, they don't need to let us know. I, if they want to watch it and react to it, then so be it. You know, that's why it's there. How does that feel that people are that affected by your work that they're taking time to make a reaction video? I think it's super cool. It's the, it's the, it's just such a cool feeling and experience to watch someone else watch what you just made and literally look them in the eye every moment of, you know, the film that you, that you just put out there 
And sometimes you see genuine terror on their face and it's, it's just such a rewarding thing to see that kind of visceral response from a complete stranger. Have you ever reached out to a creator and given feedback, good or bad? I tried to get an internship at Apatow Productions when I first uh, moved out here. Um, actually, I, I made a short horror film, come to think of it. It was a short horror documentary. It was like a mockumentary about the making of a zombie movie about love. And one of the guys that I made it with was family friends with Larry David and gave him a copy. And I think I was like, I don't know, I was maybe 17 or 18 at this time. And Larry David watched it and told my friend, hey, tell, you know, Jesse and Aaron, the other filmmakers, that they did a great job. And that was, uh, that was super cool. So I, I remember kind of pushing my friend like, hey, you should, you know Larry David, you should uh, give this to him. Not necessarily his genre, but I'd be curious to, you know, I'm a huge fan of Larry David, so I'd love to see, you know, what he thinks. How do you work with actors? I actually read a book on this. It's called I'll Be In My Trailer. Uh, I forget who wrote it. Very well-known director. Uh, and there was a lot of, lot of very interesting sort of, you know, experiences that this director had and I think I subconsciously remembered a lot of that book too which is you know you kind of you want to create an environment that is comfortable you know much like you guys are doing right now it, it helps me if I feel comfortable when I'm talking or performing or whatever so you know you want to you want to keep things comfortable it does to me it doesn't really matter what the feel of the scene is everyone should always be as comfortable as you can make them all the time, I think. And once you've sort of created that environment, then you want them to know that they're open to experimentation, that they're open to sort of try things, you know, that they might otherwise be scared to do if they feel like this is a visionary director and they know, you know, that director knows exactly what he or she wants to do, then, you know, I, I think it's important to give that actor the freedom to experiment, try new things, because I don't always know best. And sometimes actors have done something that I've, I could not have imagined of. And that's super cool to watch. Whereas if we go back to stand-up comedy, even though people have the freedom to be spontaneous in the room, that feeling isn't always gonna be there. You think, you think one brings out a better performance in people? I think, I think, I mean, I definitely think stand-up comedy is, uh, is definitely, it's, it's a form of acting for sure. Um, it's, I, I also think stand-up comedy is probably one of the most uncomfortable positions you can put yourself in, but I think, I, I think good stand-ups, it's sort of on them because there is no director. It's a completely different medium. It's on them to you know, make themselves feel comfortable on stage and, and feel, give themselves the freedom to, you know, do what they want, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. You're right, yeah, because each one kind of has its own role. Mm -hmm. so there's some very self-deprecating comics. There's some that they turn it on the audience. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, so that's very true. It is, it is their character. Do you still make money or residuals off your first feature film? I think I made a total of about $25 now off of 15 North. Um, 
I guess that was a good learning experience. Uh, the, the biggest mistake with 15 North actually, come to think of it, came to distribution. Um, not with the actual creation of the movie, but with the getting it out there into the world. Uh, we went through like a, a third party sort of tertiary company that approached us after our premiere. And they said that they wanted to distribute the movie. They loved it. We were, you know, young, early 20s. We were super excited to even have a distribution company approach us. Um, so we signed the contract, didn't get a lawyer, um, basically just, you know, signed it away. And this was a, you know, like I said, it was a third party company that basically just went through an aggregator uh, and we never saw a dime back. We never saw anything. And so what I learned from that movie was really know what you're doing when it comes to distribution and get a lawyer if you can and uh, do your research and be open to a negotiation. You're allowed to, this is a business and you are allowed to negotiate uh, ownership for your film. Do you still own the rights to it? So about two years ago, I had the contract terminated. That tertiary company actually went out of business and it, or it was bought by another company. And so we terminated the contract and now I self-distributed it on uh, Amazon, Amazon Prime. Yeah, oh, which great. is why I say I made about 25 bucks because I think I get six cents for every hour watched or something like that. Yeah. So how long was it sort of out of your hands? You said it was 2012 when you started filming? It was 2012 uh, when we shot it. I think it came out in 2013. And then the contract, I think, ran for six years or seven years. And I terminated it maybe just a couple months before the contract was expired anyway. Your second feature film, Electric Love, is on Hulu currently? Is that yes, right? it is. And so how did that happen? How did you how did you get that Hulu deal? Well, I took everything I learned from my first movie, 15 North, and and when especially when it came to distribution and we applied it to Electric Love. We had we had a friend who uh, knew someone at Gravitas Ventures and um he was able to connect us with the with the people over there and they we're interested in the film. Uh, we even were offered a, an MG, minimum guarantee, or like an advance, um, which was for like about a tenth of our budget, which was super exciting because I had never, I'd never experienced anything like that. And distribution for independent film is such a mystery to me. Uh, so we, we actually did not jump right away. We were sort of determining whether or not we wanted to go with that or... Uh, perhaps, you know, field inquiries from sales agents or other distribution companies. But anyway, we ended up going with Gravitas and uh, they uh, had it distributed internationally and then they sold it to Hulu. And that was it was very exciting. And we actually made about half of our budget back just from that. So it was, oh, wow. it was a very validating and, and exciting and just super cool thing to happen. And what types of things do you need to do to get the film ready to show on a platform like Hulu? Actually, I'm, I'm trying to think of, we actually just got an email today with a list of things that they're, apparently they're still missing. So you, you need to deliver the film in its you know 4K uh, format. You need to put together an M&E track, which is a music and effects track, which is basically w without the dialogue. 
Um, that way, internationally, they can dub over it in any language. Um, you need a complete transcription of every line spoken in the entire movie. Uh, there's, there's a lot of deliverables that are required, and every platform sort of requires something different. Um, but the distributor sort of tells you, hey, we need this, or hey, we need this, and then we just you know rush to do it. And if I can do it myself, then I will. Um, I think there were a couple of things that we needed to hire out like the, the M&E track, um, but, but you know the distributor tells you what they need and so you give it to them. How long has it been on Hulu? I think it's been on Hulu now for, I wanna say a year. I, it, actually no, maybe six months. Victoria would know, I forget, <laughs> I forget. Has anyone reached out to you about the film? I loved it, watched it. This reminds me of me. I've, got, I've gotten a couple like friend, request, friend requests on Facebook um, or, you know, DMs in, uh, on Instagram. And, uh, but, you know, not, nothing crazy. I think more so the, the actors have received some feedback. I've, I've heard uh, Zach, one of the stars of the movie, say he has people from around the world message him. Um, yeah. I did post... Uh, a copy or a photo of me holding up the Blu-ray when it came out on Reddit. And uh, I, I posted that to the filmmakers subreddit. And I think I got like a thousand upvotes or something. And a lot of other filmmakers were asking, you know, questions about it. And I do definitely try to make myself available to people, independent filmmakers that have questions about distribution. I think it's such a secret for some reason. And nobody likes discussing numbers. And, um, I think that only works to the advantage of the distributor. And I think it's important for filmmakers like us to actually share this information and learn how to properly distribute your movie and make money on it if you can. What have you found is the best way to make money as a filmmaker? To shoot weddings, probably. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it depends what, what level you're at. In, in high school, that, that is what I did. I shot weddings and bar mitzvahs. Um, Nowadays, I probably make the most getting hired by companies to just shoot music videos. Um, we, we actually just started monetizing our YouTube channel, so that's, that's an, a nice you know, extra source of income. Um, and surprisingly, making independent films that fit within a certain budget now just with, the, with all of these streaming platforms, it's actually a lot easier to make your money back and then some on independent movies. So Electric Love was about $100,000. And so far, I think we've made about 70,000 of that back. And it's wow. a seven year uh, term that you sign with the distributor that we signed. And so over seven years, we certainly plan on breaking even, hopefully, and then even making a little bit after that. It doesn't happen immediately. So you definitely have to give it some time before you even see, you know, your first check in the mail. I think it was about two years before we received our first check from Electric Love after its release. But assuming you do it correctly, then you can certainly make money back doing that. And it's what I really respect about the Duplass brothers. They figured out their business model and it works for them. And, and I, I've always had a lot of respect for them. They create their own material, they have their pipeline, they put it through, they produce other other people's movies, and um, 
it's profitable and they're able to do it again and again and again. What is that budget range that you think is the profitable budget range? I would say it's hard, it's hard to give like exact numbers. If I had to break it down, I'd probably say try to keep it below $100,000, um, especially if it's not a horror movie. I think if you make a horror film, there's, there's going to be a lot more uh, distributors nowadays that are willing to distribute something like that. Because like we were talking about before, it can be distributed to just about any country, non-English speaking country, and still translate. People will still enjoy it. Whereas a romantic comedy about online dating in Los Angeles won't necessarily translate to you know someone in Japan or some country that doesn't speak English as much. Um, so, yeah. And you said your budget for Electric Love was around 100000 It was It was about $100,000. And then Hulu, we got, we got 50K from Hulu, which was half the budget. And um, again, I, I, I like sharing the numbers mainly just to, to help filmmakers sort of get an idea as to what they can do uh, with, these, these, with films in this sort of budget range. Just... Sorry, do you mind if I ask how you raised that budget? Sure. So a lot of it was uh, self-financed. Um, I, I put up uh, a little, basically just savings from like the past since 15 North for the past five, six years. And it's not something I would recommend everyone do. Um, I did it and it's slowly working out. Um, but I was able to, you know, finance a lot myself. And another huge part of it, and this is like the second half, is Victoria actually was able to lock a lot of brand collaborations. So she comes from a background of Instagram and, you know, doing sponsorships and brand collabs. And we were able to get a lot of our wardrobe paid for, free meals, uh, even, you know, money given to us. We had friends come in and just kick in a little bit. Uh, so it was very much sort of like a crowdsourced kind of thing. Um, and honestly, if I didn't have savings, you know, five years worth of savings to put into it, uh, I still would have made it. We just would have done things a little bit differently. Uh, so it's definitely possible. And with these brand collaborations, is there a site you would go to, to find brands or you were just cold calling what might fit with the movie or emailing? We were pretty much, uh, just cold emailing companies, uh, you know, that had products or services that we could somehow include in the film without it being too obvious. I see. So you're finding things that would fit with the film and making a list and then exactly. reaching out and finding who their brand sort of manager is. And exactly. And, and Victoria is, is so good at that. She really just excels in, in that in marketing and producing and, and everything in that department. Was your pitch a long pitch or was it more to the point to these brands? Um, it, it's pretty to the point. I think at a certain point too, even when it came to post, we even had like a little loose trailer cut together that we could send over and say, here, Hey, here's what the movie looks like and here's what it is. And, we even got some brand deals after the fact when it came time to putting together a premiere. Um, so, yeah, you know, just be direct. Don't, you know, be honest about what you're doing. Um, tell them where where the movie might go and, uh, you know, who's in it. 
that kind of stuff matters in, in that regard. And uh, hope for the best. I think if you send out, you know, 200 emails, two companies might respond with a yes. With the brand uh, email, would you talk up sort of like what you could do for them more so than, hey, this is who we are? You know, I see a lot of pitches and sometimes it's more about this is who I am and this is and that's great. And I understand people are proud of their work, but sometimes it, it falls short in what they can do for the person they're asking something from. I, I, I actually would love to bring up uh, one of Victoria's emails so I could just read exactly how she, uh, you know, wrote it. But I, I think she would sort of focus on how this is going to benefit their company while simultaneously saying, you know, and in, in not in these exact words, but we know what we're doing and this movie is going to have eyeballs on it. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, we're professionals and this can benefit you. And just last question about it. Would you try, would you email them a second time if you heard no or, or did, I'm sorry, if you didn't hear anything? Um, traditionally not. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think we just emailed so many companies at a certain point that it was even hard to keep track of, um, Again, I don't know if that is like the best method, but I see no harm in it. And you know, if a, a no is a no, it doesn't it doesn't bother us. Um, you know, we we've had plenty of rejection working in entertainment anyway. So uh, you know, if a, if a company is like not for us, no big deal. And if they don't answer, then you know, there's there's plenty of other uh, uh, brands that we could reach out to. Where was the premiere? At the uh, was it the I think it was the Aria Fine Arts Theater on Wilshire. Nice. Yeah. What do you know about filmmaking that you wish you knew before? And again, I realize that's, you know, that's like a typical job interview question, but there's a lot of weight to it. Um, sure. I mean, I, I think the really the biggest thing that I have learned is just the secrets of distribution. The actual filmmaking part, you, you just you just need to make mistakes in order to grow. So you know, with the actual creativity and putting it together and not planning and seeing how that turns out and then doing a little more planning and seeing how that turns out. It's all, it really is all part of the process. And it's, it's something that everyone I think needs to go through. Even if they try not to, they're going to make mistakes. It's necessary uh, to make the best movie. The only like cold, hard facts that you can actually learn is pretty much now that I made the movie, how do I get it out there? And that's also always evolving and changing. So, you know, the, the means of distribution seven years ago is completely different than what it is now. Uh, so you have to stay on top of that. But sort of just understanding what your film's value is and what is possible is the, the biggest thing that I've learned over the past few years. How do you know what the value is? I guess what I mean by value is sort of having the confidence to to know that there is an audience for your film. If you if you you know put in a, the some if you put in a year's worth of time and effort into making a movie, uh, there is going to be an audience for it somewhere. You know there is there is a lot of people in this world, and and a lot of people have TVs and computers and. 
uh, nowadays, that's all you need to share content. And even if you can't get distribution, you can self-distribute now. Like I, I wasn't able to do that 10 years ago. And if I did, then I just didn't know about it. Uh, now it's so much more user-friendly and you can get your movie on Amazon Prime like that with, with their Amazon Video Direct service. Um, so it, it really, it's, it's inspiring and it gives me hope knowing that the success of your film relies entirely on the work that you put into it. Can you share with us the process of getting your movie on Amazon Prime? Yeah, so it's a service called Amazon Video Direct. And I, I, did, I set this up about a year and a half ago for our first movie. And you really just follow the instructions. You upload your file, uh, you upload your subtitles. And after it's approved, you literally just link it to your you know, bank account and you have all the analytics and everything and it's on you to market and promote your movie. And you can choose whether or not you want to put it on Prime so Prime users can stream it for free or you can set it you know, to just for rental and purchase. Um, but I think Vimeo also offers a service where you can do that. So if you're interested in self-distribution, Vimeo and Amazon, I think, are the best platforms to do that on right now. And what type of video file is it? Oh, I, I, I don't remember exactly what kind of video file they require. Probably like an MP4 or H.264 um, 4K file, ideally. I, I think you can put anything, any, any format you want, I believe. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be 4K. And I, I'm not like a master at the self-distribution. I've only done it once. So uh, don't quote me on this, but, but it, it's pretty simple. And, and Amazon definitely has instructions on how to do it properly. With the text of the, the subtitles, is it a text file or how are you I, uploading I them? think so. I think it is a text file. I'm not, I, I'm not sure. I, I think I remember actually going using YouTube I uploaded the movie to YouTube. It YouTube has an algorithm that automatically scans every word. And then I copied all of that text from the YouTube platform and then put that into the Amazon platform. And then I just had to sort of, you know, edit some of like the spacing and alignments just to match. But there there are ways to figure it out. And Google has been very good to me in helping me through that process. So yeah. <laughs> But, it, but yeah, I think it was like about a year and a half since I went through that. And I think I did the entire, uh, I set up the entire self-distribution thing in about a day or two. Really, the, the hardest part was just really just uh, waiting for it to upload and then get approved by, by Amazon. Um, and, and there's also a good chance that the entire uh, means of uploading has changed since then. I've been getting emails about changes to their service and layout and I don't really check it that often. I, I kind of figured, you know, 50 North is certainly a movie that I made a long time ago. I don't intend on searching for a whole new distribution deal or anything. So I figured I'd just, you know, th put it up on Amazon and let it live there. How do you think teaching others on YouTube has helped you to become a better filmmaker? I think it's sort of forced me to come up with the most efficient method of doing certain things that I can then just apply to my own filmmaking and do it that much faster. Whereas ordinarily I'd have to, you know, th 
think about how am I going to do this effect or, you know, I, I need to experiment in Premiere After Effects trying to figure out a certain, you know, effects that I'm trying to do. Doing these tutorials, I research the hell out of a certain topic and then I just streamline it so that I can say it as succinctly and easy to understand as possible. So on some level, it's also helped with communication is, you know, I think if you can show other people how to do something, it helps you do it even better. And how has either receiving um, reaction videos or getting comments shaped your idea of audience feedback? If it has, I'm sure it's, it's happened more subconsciously. I, I, uh, I, I try to read as many comments as I can. I'm sure a lot of people are like, don't read the comments. That's a bad idea. But I like reading them, even, even if they're not great. Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty honest with myself and I, I have a feeling, you know, about the type of content I'm putting out and, you know, where it stands and, and with everything else. And I, I see tr some truth in some of the mean comments. Sometimes I'm like, they're just mean. That's ridiculous. And I love the support and I, I love, you know, uh, reading all the, the positivity and, and most, most of the comments are, are good. Like there's, there's not too many people that are just, you know, shitting all over everything and, uh, uh, hating what we do. And if, if they are, then it's just, it's not for them and that's okay. Yeah. I love it when people share about their process or their life and you're reading about someone you know, overseas and what they do. And it, uh, to me, that's, those are my favorite comments just, right. to, just to hear other people's process. And uh, absolutely. Cool. I, I just released our first making of video on our channel just uh, yesterday, actually. Um, I, I mean, I'm hugely inspired by David F. Sandberg and I love that he does that on his channel. So, you know, I'm thinking, well, I love that he does that. I, I should do that for people that are watching our short films. Uh, you know, why would I deprive them? If for anyone that wants to see it, here it is. So, you know, I, I put that together and it's, it's, uh, it's cool. Are you excited to release your third feature film, Val? I am. It's, uh, it's going to be a lot different than the past, uh, assuming the world is still closed down. We were planning on having a big premiere. We had to cancel our, our rap party because of everything, but, um, you know, that, that aside, the actual making of it was an absolute blast. It was one of the best experiences I've ever had making a movie. It's a horror fantasy, kind of in the vein of Beetlejuice. And uh, yeah, we, we plan on, you know, reaching out to some of the same distributors that we've worked with in the past and uh, sort of sending out the trailer and seeing what happens, seeing where we can uh, land a home for it. But I'm super excited. It's it's a different type of movie than than the other two. What has it taught you about storytelling? This is the first movie that a lot of people that know me and worked on this movie have said, this is an actual movie. And I think what they meant by that is storytelling wise and character wise, everything was just it was it was just more. It had a much bigger punch. All the the protagonists were so much cl more clearly defined and the antagonist was clear, defined, dimensional. 
Um, the set pieces and the production design, we spent so much more time actually looking for the right locations and props and everything. So I think what this movie taught me was to really just, it's the endless journey of paying attention to as many little details as you possibly can to make the best movie. And I think that that comes with time because there are plenty of times in my other first two films where I'm like, oh no, this is good enough. Like the production design, it is what it is. This is what it looks like. I'm happy with it. Now I, I don't really have that mindset anymore. I definitely spend a lot more time focusing on everything. And it's wonderful having a partner, Victoria, with me by my side, helping and doing, you know, doing a lot of the heavy lifting and and uh, shaping characters, writing, you know, a, a good portion of like female perspectives, for example, uh, which I'm, I'm oftentimes not too good at. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely learned a lot on this movie and, and I, I hope uh, I hope the release is a successful one. What's it about? It is about, it's hard to say what this is about without actually giving away the ending, but it's sort of a supernatural thriller, horror, comedy, very much like Beetlejuice, about a criminal who's on the run and he gets into an altercation with the police officer at the very beginning and he escapes and he breaks into a woman's home and holds her hostage. And as the movie goes on, you realize that his reality starts to sort of shift and change and things aren't really as they seem. And what inspired that? We were originally planning on making a movie, a different movie that, that we wrote last summer. And uh, financing was actually, we lost the, the budget for that movie. The financier actually pulled out. Um, so I turned to Victoria and I was like, I want to just make a movie. I don't, I just want to make something that we don't really rely on anyone else. Let's come up with an idea that takes place in pretty much one location with two actors primarily and just do the best we can. And she liked the idea. After a couple days of thinking about it, I turned to Victoria and I was like, well, what about a movie about this? And she was like, there's some potential there. And then she offered a really cool idea, which added a ton to the story. We wrote it together in about four months. And I think we're in production, went into production about two months after that. So you're lucky you did it before the pandemic we are so lucky. Honestly, the only reason I'm sane right now is because we were able to shoot this movie beginning of March and we wrapped probably about three days before everything shut down. On set, we were joking about the the state of the world in like a now very unfunny way, but it was sort of someone would cough and we'd be like, oh, you have the corona and... It was sort of a, a loose joke on set. Now, it, looking back, it's like, no, it's a, it a real thing. Uh, but we are all so thankful that we got to work one last time for a while and, um, you know, get this done before everything closed down. So it was just perfect timing. And, and you know, I, I, I think, I don't think it's, it's a bad thing for the film. I think, you know, especially distribution companies, platforms are... It, because of such uncertain times, it, it's probably going to um, 
it might even help, you know, I think distribution companies are looking for more material now. So, so it might not be that bad for, for the film. Do you have any ADR or retakes that you need to do for There's it? some second unit stuff that we might have to do. Um, there is one little piece that we still have to shoot, but everything that we need to do from here on out can be done pretty safely or even just hired out, you know, uh, to be done it on someone else's time and just by themselves. Sure, they can mail you the audio file. Or exactly, yeah. Do something, yeah. Yeah. Can you share what it was like for the two months before production? So you finished the script and then you said you had around two months before you started It was about two months since we finished, yeah. And of course, we're, you know, sort of trying our, our hardest to just tighten up the bolts of the script during that two months pre-production phase. But, uh, you know, that was pretty much just uh, meeting with DPs, directors of photography, and uh, meeting with actors, making offers to actors that we wanted to be in the film, um, locking our production insurance, which is one of the first things you do, getting your LLC in line so that you can do all of that. You know, just pretty, pretty standard uh, pre-production stuff. And then we went scouting for locations and the location for this movie was very important. And we actually ended up finding the perfect location in Ojai and um, we met with the owner of this property and it was just a beautiful, stunning house. And we worked something out with her, ended up shooting the entire thing there. And uh, yeah, to, to raise the, the financing for the movie, we had a Seed and Spark campaign. And then we also had some, uh, some investors come on board that were fans from Electric Love. So they saw what we could do with the previous film and they invested some money into this one. Um, I took the, the little money that we had made at that point of Electric Love and put that into this one. So it's literally just, you know, the, the circle. And we were able to come up with the budget and um, yeah, shot over, I believe the entire shoot was 15 days. So it was tight. Did the crew and cast stay at the house in Ojai or did that you That was the fun rent? part. Everybody actually stayed in the same house together. It was basically just a giant party for, for 15 days in this house in Ojai. And uh, yeah, it was, it was just a lot of fun. A lot of great food and good times. And um, yeah. Do you set up these LLCs yourself? Victoria sort of spearheads the the setting up of LLCs. She does a lot of the pre-production work. Um, that's her favorite part. It's my least favorite part. Um, but yeah, it's uh, there, there's a couple different ways to do it. I think for Val, we did it on legal Zoom, and then for Electric Love, we actually went to um, a building downtown and and you know filled out all the paperwork in person. Um, but yeah, there's, there's several different ways to set up an LLC and, and yeah. What's the significance of guacamole? I love guacamole. <laughs> <laughs> What's your best recipe? <laughs> um, sprinkling a little bit of the pomegranate seeds on top of the, uh, of course, avocado, cilantro, red onion, a little bit of lime, although I'm not, I, I could do with or without the lime. Um, but the pomegranate seeds, it's a nice touch. It's a real nice touch. 